Welcome to Parenting in Queens. I am your host, Cecia Falcon. And in every episode, I get to speak to incredible people that are honest about their parenting journey and why they choose to raise their children right here in Queens. In this conversation, my guest and I speak about building a community, what it takes to raise resilient children that are thriving, her journey into co-founding Immigrant Families Together, and lastly, she gives an amazing insight about how we, as parents, can contribute to build a better community. I can't wait until you listen to this episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. So for today's episode, I'm with Julie Collazo. She's the mom of three kids that resides in Long Island City. Julie is the co-founder of Immigrant Families Together and co-author of Harper One Memoir, The Book of Rosie, that will be published on June 2nd of this year. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, before we dive in into like the amazing work that you do, I would like to start by learning a little bit about your parenting. You were telling me that you have three kids, or ten. Mm-hmm. Nine, five? Ten, six, and five. Ten, six, and five. Okay, almost. So what is, now that you've, to me, you're like a seasoned parent, like you're already <laughs> going through three kids, like what is, what are your parent, like, philosophies at the moment? That's a really good question. Um, I think my parenting philosophy is not a very New York parenting philosophy in many ways, um, in part because... My husband is from Cuba, and I think grew up um, in a really different setting in terms of family, notions of what family is, and sort of who that includes, and who's involved in parenting, right? That it's not just the biological parents, that it's sort of, it's the whole family, and it's the whole community, and that we all sort of share that collective responsibility of parenting each other's children, and each other, in a way. And so I think there's a part of... um, his experience growing up in that culture that has definitely um, impacted what I want to be as a parent and how I want us to parent our children. So there's that piece. I think also, though, when I say that I'm not a very New York style parent, what I mean is that I guess I would describe myself in a way as laissez-faire, right? When I learned that I grew up in South Carolina, I went to public school for most of my childhood with the exception of junior high. Um, And like you just went to the school that you were assigned, right? That was in your district. And here it's like this whole, like you start thinking about what school your child will go to, even if it's a public school, like before the child is even conceived. And I just felt like that's a whole lot of thought and energy to put into something that hasn't even happened yet and over which you actually have very little control. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is I don't, invest a lot of energy and I think in a lot of the things that New York parents tend to like focusing on what which middle school my 10 year old is going to get into next year I didn't even go to any of the open houses which isn't to say that I don't care I think it's just that understanding that we have to really make a home and a community and a place for ourselves and for others wherever we find ourselves right and so what I'm really trying to do as a parent and what my husband is trying to do as a parent is really to say we want to Um, support our kids to be really resilient and to thrive in any sort of setting and situation and also to provide them with sort of the awareness and the capacity to be able to create those kinds of spaces for other people too. And I think what's really beautiful about our kids is that even at their ages and being fairly young, I think they're really good about doing that each in their own way. So that's really nice. So far, so good. (laughs) 
Has there been a moment, like in the day, if you remember anything like they've said or done, you're like, oh, I'm getting it right. Yeah, I mean, so many, so many things, but I, not so much about me getting it right necessarily is like just understanding that part of that is just like who each of them is. Mm -hmm. But I think, um, yeah, they, I mean, they each just have a really um, special sense of like, of self that is very, it's a very collective sense of self, right? So um, I think probably to answer your question very concretely, though, is most recently when we had parent-teacher conferences and our our two youngest kids are in dual language classes. So they have two different teachers and they switch classes every day. And, you know, we met with both of the teachers for our five-year-old and the teacher said, like, Olivia's just so she's just such a good citizen in the classroom. Like she, she does her work. She sort of is on task, but she's also always looking for opportunities to help and support other people. And I was like, Oh, good. That's what we're working on. So <laughs> this is great. That's what you like to hear as a parent. Yeah. I mean, at least for me, my kid, my kid hasn't gone to school, but I would not focus so much on the grades, but right. like how he is in general as a person. I yeah. think we can go into like the whole thing about grace. <laughs> we could. Oh yeah, I was I was restraining myself there. Yes, yeah. we could. <laughs> but it's um yeah, it's it's difficult. I guess because we grew up thinking okay, the the grade or the number is the person that you will be, you know. And now like for me, I guess, and like the people I surround myself with, there is an awakening that it, that is not really what you want your child to focus on. Right. And I, but on the other hand, I think our system is still very structured to like perform, right. And to achieve a certain grade and that achieving a certain grade reflects on your like worth and your possibilities as, you know, a future student and a future professional. And so I think it takes a lot to sort of go against the grain as a parent and be like, to say to your kids, which we've said to our kids, I definitely want you to try your best, but I'm also like, I don't care so much about the grade that you bring home. I care about, do you understand the concept? I care about like, are you a good person, right? I care about, are you a person who fails and then tries again, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that's um, a very different message than like our generation received yes. growing up, right? Where so many of us, my parents were the first in their families to go to college. Their parents didn't really want them to go to college. They worked to put themselves through college um, without any financial help from their families. And so for my parents, it was like education was incredibly important. And that was like the goal was always for my brother and for me to go to college. Right. So like we knew from a really young age, like you need to, you know, you need to get A's. Like if you didn't have an A, like why wasn't it an A? And it wasn't a punitive thing, but it was definitely a the message was like how you do now is going to affect your possibilities as a human. And I think as an adult, there's a kernel of truth in that. Right. But like, I also think our society has changed in so many ways. And I think like the way that we sort of work and just the very notion of work, like my father worked in the same career, the same job, his entire career for 40 years. And I think about that now, like, do you know anybody who holds the same job for 40 years? No. So I think like now the sense of like, grade being destiny is not you know what it was for my parents generation fortunately <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for sharing that I think um you touched on a lot of things that I wanted to go over but the first thing is like you said about raising your kids it's about community right and how obviously living in the city that's it's really difficult like a lot of parents that I 
here with like to day to day they're basically alone mm-hmm. you know it's just trying to manage if, even if it's like a two-parent household they just try to manage and go by the day so how do you build that village here in queens i think those of us who live in queens are really lucky at least i feel this way in my little corner of wyland city in astoria is that we are fortunate to partly through our kids school but i think just through the community itself is very focused on what does community mean? And they're really interested in building community and being part of community and sort of understanding that community doesn't just happen passively. It's something that you actively build and that you nurture. And so, you know, it's, I I have literal conversations, especially with other moms about that. And like, what does that look like? What does that require of us? Both on like a civic participation level, but also in a day-to-day sort of like showing up for each other. Right. So that the kind of aloneness that you're describing, somebody's not sort of just like collapsed in that aloneness. Right. It's like, is there a way on a really concrete level that I can help you somehow make your day easier as a human, but also specifically as a parent? Um, And so I feel really fortunate that we we have that community. And one of the things that I am always looking at because I do feel really fortunate is like, how can I make somebody else's day easier, right? And so, like, I I do totally see, like, in Facebook mom groups in Queens, there is, there is this, like, profound feeling of aloneness, this profound feeling of, like, frazzled, you know, like, never being good enough, never getting finished, all the things you want to finish, you know, worried that you're not being sort of, like, a good enough parent. And I think, um, what can I do to help somebody sort of, like, deal with the logistical day-to-day of their life, but also like that emotional piece. And I think my background as a social worker and a therapist is helpful in that sense because, you know, one of the concepts that we learn in social work school is like that of the good enough parent, right? Like none of us is going to be perfect. If you're good enough, that's good enough, right? And so just like sort of reflecting for people, like nobody has this together, you know, like nobody's doing this perfectly. We're all just sort of going through it the best we can. But I think creating those spaces where especially where we do get offline too and say like, let's literally gather together, um, throw like some big paper on the floor and a bunch of crayons and let the kids make a wild mess and don't worry about it while the rest of us sort of just sit around and like recharge. Right. And we did that this weekend with a bunch of parent friends where we're like, bring all the kids. We put them in the kid's bedroom. Like it got so disgustingly messy and they put stickers everywhere and that was okay. Right. Cause like it was just this moment where, everybody could kind of be and like recharge. And I think that's important to create those, those moments. Those are really good tips because first you're giving us like concrete examples, like actually getting together instead of just messaging. Mm-hmm. With messaging is, you know, it's right. it has its place for sure. Um, and the other thing is meeting together. And I think that is very important when we recharge, but also let the kids be. Because sometimes we're like on them. Oh, did you do right. homework? Did you eat? Did you sleep? Like we're still on them. Or maybe they just need a break from us too. And I think like we don't have to like over schedule them and like entertain them all the time. Right. Mm-hmm. Like I, we just pulled out this big bucket of art supplies we have and like put it in the middle of the floor. And, like you all go entertain yourselves. And they sort of like spill out to the living room. I'm like, nope, <laughs> go back in there. Like there are 12 of you in here at this moment. Like you've got plenty to entertain yourselves with. So yeah. Oh my goodness. But you sound very confident now, like that, you know, this is your approach. Was that 
as a new mom, like how, what hurdles like did you have to overcome? So I didn't necessarily think that I would ever be a mom. Okay. <laughs> I also didn't necessarily ever think I would get married. And I was, it's, I was unlike a lot of my friends growing up who were like, knew they wanted to get married, knew they wanted to have kids, had picked out like their wedding dress, had picked out, you know, I have a friend who had like picked out the names for her kids when she was like seven or eight. And that was never that person. And so um, my husband and I had been together for six years um, when I found out that I was pregnant with our first child. And I was like, oh, I don't know, like this is going to change things, right? Like we have this super tight dyad and we've sort of got our life and our routine. And like, I'm not sure that I'm cut out for this. Um And I think, I don't know, like a lot of magical and weird things happen when you're pregnant and, and when you're like giving birth, this sort of like everything kind of snapped into place. And I also think like, we're really lucky because our kids are easy kids. Like they're easygoing kids and they're easy kids. But um, yeah, I feel like, I think part of my, um, it not it's not that I was always confident, but I was very sure that. I sort of, I didn't have to like stop the rest of my life, right? And I think that one of the things, particularly as a writer and as somebody who used to travel a lot and who still travels a lot, um, you know, a lot of like, especially women writer friends are like, oh, my my like creative life just stopped when I had a kid. I'm like, but it, but why? Like it, for most people, I'm not saying everybody because people's circumstances and realities are different, but it, it doesn't have to, right? And so it's about, Um, I was fully present for, you know, my child and still am, but also like realizing that I am like this whole person and there's not this like moment where I'm going to hit this pause button just because I had kids and then like come back to it 20 years later and like, you know, sort of try to realize whatever it is that I wanted to do when I was 35, right? Like it can all, it all can really, kids are so much more resilient than we think they are, right? And so like my kids, Mardiel, I think was maybe two months old when I like strapped her on and like we went on an international flight, you know? And I'm, I just think like kids can roll with a whole lot more stuff than we think that they can roll with. So, so that's just like, come more. on, cause we're going, so <laughs> you, we got to figure this out. <laughs> that's great. I like that approach that is like more relaxed. I know like you said, it's not very confident, but you know, you feel like you had that chance to like discover yourself, I guess. Well, and I think also time. to like, to allow the child to teach you rather than like to allow or to feel like a book or an, an expert is going to be the person to teach you how to parent. Right. And so like one of the examples is that my, um, my actually all my kids, but specifically the first one, because at that point I didn't have the experience of being a parent, um, did certain things a lot later than, she was supposed to, right? And so uh, one of those things was potty training. And I just wasn't like, I'm like, I am not gonna spend like many multiple hours of my life sitting on the side of the bathtub waiting for this kid to figure out how to go to the bathroom, right? Or like teaching them how to go to the bathroom. And I really let her stay in diapers as long as she wanted to until one day when she was about to turn four, she took off the diaper, she sat on the toilet, she peed, and she never had an accident after that and never went back to diapers, right? It was like, if you just trust that your kid will let you know in their own time what they're ready for and what they need, it's really okay. Like, you don't have to rush your kid into potty training or going off a bottle or or whatever sort of we think all of these 
typical milestones are, like, they'll get to it. I mean, unless there's something severely, like, clearly wrong with them that they need some other level of support. But she was fine. I think it's just, like, we get into these notions because we sort of get all of these messages from society about this should happen by this time, and this is what you should be doing as a parent to, like, create that. The other thing that I do not get, like, bent out of shape about at all is, like, our kids don't have a bedtime, and they never have. Our kids also never napped, (laughs) ever, none of them. Um, So I'm just, like, would I love for my kids to go to bed at 8 o'clock? Absolutely. We need adult time. But I'm also, like, I, you know, when I try to sleep train our, um, our oldest one, I was, like, I would lay in bed for three or four hours with her waiting for her to go to sleep, and I'm, like, my life... (laughs) Like those hours are ticking away. Like, and I would get up out of the bed when she finally fell asleep and I would be exhausted. I'm like, the idea was, is that she would go to bed and get adequate rest, but also that I would have time for me to do the things that I wanted to do or to have a relationship with my husband. I'm like, and I don't have the energy to do that now because I've just spent like four hours in bed with her while she's tossing around and trying to go to sleep. So it's just like, I think kids are more resilient than we give them credit for, but they also, they know sort of, within their own bodies, what they need and what they're ready for. And they will tell you that if you're willing to listen to them and sort of drown, close out the, all of the other external messages that you get about what you need to be doing as a parent. And did you ever experience um, any, like, I don't know, like negative comments from people like, oh, what is in your kid? Oh, yeah. My mom was like... Especially my mom specifically said to me at one point, yeah, don't you think, like, you should really get her out of diapers by now? And the same thing, like, I was not able to breastfeed. Um, and so she had, like, a bottle until she was almost four, too. My mom was like, oh, don't you think, like, it's time to, like, cut her off of all this? And I'm like, no. <laughs> I think that she will indicate when she's done. Right? And she did with all of those things, and all the kids did. Like, when they were done with the bottle— they set it aside and that was that. It wasn't like this dramatic, traumatic, like, now we're going to cut this off. You know, mm-hmm. it was like, in my own time, I figure out what I need and when I'm ready to make that transition. And, yeah, I mean, it was it's hard, I think, to push back against all of that, you know, People's very well-meaning advice. Yes. Did you ever, were you inspired by any book or any expert or what's this all coming natural to you it's just like common sense to you no I don't think it was necessarily common sense or natural but um I do think that being exposed to so many developmental theories in social work school was extremely helpful because what it showed to me it was like you know you study I would say like four or five main schools of thought about how humans develop Right. And I think every student kind of gravitates toward their own preferred model of development. And I definitely gravitated toward Eric Erickson's stage model of development. But I think like when you see that here are all of these experts. Right. And they all have these models of human development and they're not even in agreement about how people develop. I think, you know, I at the end of the day, I think it's it's worth that to take sort of all of that in. Right. And also to just sort of know when to like use that as a point of reference but not to use it as like a guideline for yourself or for your kids right and just to sort of if you can be present to them which I think is really hard to be present period these days but like if you can be really present to them like and they're messaging to you especially if it's not verbal messaging um that yeah like I mean I, I just 
I think we we sort of give exports more credit than we give ourselves and our own sort of I don't and it's not innate knowledge right but it's just like observational skills I guess so you mentioned that you have a master's in social work mm-hmm. um as you know as that's your I guess your specialty how does that really translate into helping the families that you're working with now So it's really funny because I left the field of social work almost as soon as I entered it. Um, I I started working in social work in 2000, when, in 1999 when I graduated from college. I got an internship and then I continued to get my master's degree and I got my master's degree, I think, in 2001. And by 2003, I had left the profession because I was really burned out, not on the work with patients, but on the bureaucracy of nonprofits, right? I had become the assistant director of Goodwill and Astoria of their day treatment program. Um, at the time, I was like 22. So I'm in this very awkward middle management position where I still had this full caseload of clients to give individual and group therapy to many times a week. And I also had this management role where I was sort of this intermediary between the line staff and the the directors. And it was a really uncomfortable position because I just could see there were so many ways to solve all the problems that were plaguing this agency and sort of social work in the nonprofit world at large. And there were all these forces that were working against making these really simple solutions implementable, right? And I was just like, I'm done. Like, I felt extremely disillusioned because I was like, this is what I wanted to do with my life. And I thought I was good at it. And I thought that I could see these pathways for change. And then I was just like, oh, this whole thing that they tell you about being able to change it from the inside is actually not true. <laughs> it was really devastating. And I was just like, I, after that, I was like, okay, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life because I was that a student, good girl, like striving toward this professional goal that I expected to spend my life on. And then I was like, okay, I'm done, but now I don't know what I'm going to do, which was not part of my plan for myself. Right. And I moved to Puerto Rico and um, while I was there, um, became a tour director for Smithsonian, leading tours for students around the island. And then in the off season, um, became a writer and was writing mostly about Puerto Rico. And um, so, but I think that like what you not, those seem like maybe different paths and different professions, but they're all about storytelling, right? They're all about helping people find a voice and find a way to share their story, not how to find their voice, but like how to articulate their story. And um, so what happened with Immigrant Families Together and sort of when this happened is like, I've now come full circle, full circle back to social work, which is not something that I thought I would do, but it's become incredibly valuable um, because all of the skills that I used as a social worker that I developed as a social worker are directly applied every single day for families skills of advocacy, um, skills of recognizing um, developmental um, paths, skills of recognizing the effects of trauma and how it gets manifest, um, how to help people advocate for themselves. So I think how to help people find resources that they can connect and plug into um, to be able to help themselves. So it's been really valuable. It would be, this would be a very different organization, a very different work if We didn't, my husband also has a background in counseling and social work um, service agencies. So, like, I think it would be a very different organization if we didn't have those backgrounds. So, tell me a little bit, 
if you can go back, how did it start? Like the idea of doing this? Because a lot of, you know, a lot of us were devastated to see what was happening at the borders, but a lot of us don't start a nonprofit. So yeah, and I didn't want to start a nonprofit either for all the reasons that I was just mentioning. I didn't want to replicate the bureaucracy that I had run away from. And it's really hard to not do that when you become a nonprofit. Um, but what happened was, is I, I think like so many people, right, every single day as this policy was being implemented and sort of like the horror of it was becoming more visible to all of us, I was just really wondering, like, are we actually going to let this happen? And are we letting this happen? Like, why would we do that? How can we intervene in a way that's helpful rather than harmful, right? Because there's a lot of action that can be taken and, and well-meaning action too, that can be taken in the guise of being helpful that is actually harmful and problematic. And so it was really important to me that it be useful and not harmful. Um, and I wasn't sure what to do, especially not being like at the border itself, but on, um, June 21st of 2018, I heard an interview on the radio with an attorney here in New York who said that he had a client who was a mom who had been separated from her three kids and that she was in a detention center in Arizona and her kids were here in a foster care center in New York. And he said she could actually, there's no reason she should still be in detention. She has a bond. If, if she could pay that, then she would get out of detention. She could reunite with her kids and then she would go through the process of seeking asylum outside of detention. And I was like, for me, it was truly that sort of moment where I was like, ah, oh, this is a thing that like we can do. My plan was not to like scale it to 100 plus people. My plan was really to say, I think that I have enough angry friends who feel very helpless and would like to do something tangible that among us as a community, we could raise the money to pay this person's bond and get her back to her kids. And that was really like the extent of the idea, sort of. The other piece of it was I did understand very early on because of my background in social work that it wasn't just about paying for her to get out of detention and getting her back with her kids because what do you do then? Like you're a mom in New York in a place and in a language that's not familiar to you how do you establish and build a life for yourself as you're going through the asylum seeking process in the age of Trump, right? Like that's like 20 horrible to cope with things right there. And I thought I, the commitment that I wanted my friends to make wasn't just monetary. It was also to say, we're making a commitment to you as a community that we will be here for you and support you through this process, right? Whatever that meant, whether that meant connecting them with other services and resources or whether if they were interested in that, like, becoming part of our community, right? And like becoming friends. And um, and so I called the attorney, I just Googled him and he answered on the first ring. And I was like, I heard you on the radio. It seems like this is something really concrete and tangible that we could do. Would you be interested? And would your client be interested? And he just started laughing hysterically. And he's like, of course we would be interested. She doesn't have the money. And within like 24 hours, we had gone like above and beyond raising what her bond was. And it was clear that it wasn't going to stop. Like the money just kept coming in. And um, because of my background at this point in journalism and writing, I had all of these media contacts. So, you know, people were interested in the story of like this group of angry, mostly moms, like getting this mom out of detention and bringing her across the country in a caravan of volunteer drivers, many of them immigrants themselves, 
um, across the United States from Arizona to New, to New York to bring her back to her kids. And it got a lot of media attention, which then made more money come in, which then made the lawyer come back to me and say, well, you did it successfully one time. Can you do it again? Here's this whole list of other people. And so I'm like, well, I mean, the money's here. It's like, why not? Right. Yeah. But it's become, um, it's become, a, yes, a year and a half later, it is on its way to becoming a nonprofit, which I feel conflicted about. But also, like, we got to the point where because of the level of money we were raising and the level of responsibility that we were taking on with families, it was really crucial to have the sort of legal architecture and structure of a nonprofit to be able to offer accountability and transparency. So, yeah, that's, that's amazing. Story. <laughs> it's a great story. So you were the one <laughs> that went, did you drive with all the moms? No. So, um, I didn't. Um, a, another volunteer coordinated um, this whole network of volunteer drivers. Um, and I think maybe we had eight to 10 drivers um, who drove different legs of the trip. And then um, it, at night, they would stay like in another volunteer's home. And I think it was just, it was one of those um, experiences, both for the mom who was released, as well as the people who were participating, was just like, that sense of like reclaiming your personal power and your personal possibility in the face of something so horrible, right? Like maybe this was like one small thing that somebody was doing, but it really truly had an incredible impact both for the mom and for them. Um, there was a rabbi in Michigan, for example, who drove part of the journey and he was so, he doesn't speak Spanish and the mom doesn't speak English. Right. And so like they're communicating via Google translate as he's driving And yet he was so moved by the experience of driving her that he then um, ended up organizing this interfaith uh, pilgrimage, essentially, to the tent city in Texas where unaccompanied minors were being held to, like, witness what was happening there and, like, put pressure and eventually got shut down. And so just to think about all of these ways in which, you know, people's individual stories and lives intersected for a very brief moment of time. It's sort of how that led to all of these other movements and moments that I think, you know, are people like putting their little grain of sand, right. And like reminding people that in the face of something terrible, like you're not powerless, right. Like just use what you have. If you have a car, use a car. Like if you have, you know, the ability to write, then, then write or pick up the phone and, you know, but you're not, you don't have to sort of sit and, stew in your sense of powerlessness mm -hmm. thank you so much for sharing that um i read recently that you went to the to the borders mm -hmm. so tell us a little bit about that experience so i've been i think maybe three times okay. now over the past year and a half um and i think what is really sad is that when i was there the situation was um acutely bad you know you've got people who are seeking asylum who for, you know, a long time were sleeping on the international bridge between Mexico and the United States, like sleeping outside on a piece of cardboard on a bridge. Um, and then authorities moved them off the bridge and they didn't have a place to go. And so these tent cities sprung up at the base of the bridge on the Mexico side. And at that time when I went, it was really difficult. There's like a, a team of incredible volunteers who go over every day with food and with supplies and, and donations. But 
you know, as this problem has grown and as we've created this Remain in Mexico program, which essentially forces asylum seekers to stay in Mexico for really extended periods of time, these tent cities have swelled from when I first went were maybe like 70 to 100 people to now thousands of people. And so you have now problems of public health and hygiene because there's nowhere to go to the bathroom, right? You have problems of kids um, missing, you know, months, if not years of education because they're living in a tent at the base of a bridge. Um, and so I think the situation there is really dire. And I think it's, it's like anything, right? It's difficult to sort of visualize and understand the extent of it until you're there in person. At the same time, I would say, I think in the face of all of this, amazing people have come together and really devoted themselves and their lives to trying to fix things that our government should really be fixing. Right. But like private citizens have to sort of come together and do that work. And so they've done everything from, raise money to bring in 20 porta potties so that people have a place to go to the bathroom. They brought in portable showers and portable sinks. They contract contacted Jose Andres of world central kitchen. And now they've set up like a tent with a, an actual kitchen there to be able to cook for people. Um, they have teachers who are volunteering to do um, school. So I think, you know, people are responding in different ways. Okay, can you tell me a little bit about the attorney and how you guys started working mm -hmm. together, right? So he, um, the attorney is not an immigration lawyer. He's a DUI lawyer. And the um, family got in touch with him because on the way to the United States, even though the mom didn't know about the zero tolerance policy that results in family separation, she had had the presence of mind, as so many moms do, right? To say, like, if somehow we get separated or you get lost, memorize this phone number and call this family member who lives in the United States. And so when they did get separated and they and the kids ended up in New York, they called the family member um, who lived in the South and said, this is where we are. And I think that she just Googled and looked for a Spanish speaking attorney near where the kids were and found Jose, who's from Nicaragua, a DUI attorney. He has kids. He had also, I think, felt deeply affected by what was happening. And so his phone number starts getting shared around the facility and he's getting phone calls all the time from women who are like, I have a bond offer. I was separated from my kids at the border too. My kids are in Michigan or they're in Texas or they're in Florida. Um, can you help? And so he, once he saw that, you know, we raised this, large amount of money that we successfully got the mom safely from Arizona to New York, that we facilitated the reunification of the mom with the kids and that we were then ready to provide all of this social service style ongoing support. He said, look, I've got this list of other people. Like, can you help them too? And so it was really from there, it just kind of took off. And then my phone number started circulating around the detention facility and people would call me Um, and then a mom who was detained in Arizona who had happened to be detained previously in California because folks get moved around a lot in the detention centers. She passed my phone number to somebody in a detention center in California. So then we started getting phone calls from all these different detention centers. And that's really how it spiraled. And people just would, if they had a bond offer, they would call and they would say, you know, I was separated from my kids. This is where I think my kids are. You know, this is where I need to go. Can you help? And so as long as we had the money to do it, we did.
That's great. So now that you're talking about helping, how can like someone just that is, you know, especially as a parent, sometimes we want to dedicate ourselves to certain work like you do, but how can we help in a way that is doesn't take too much time, but is effective? So I think there, I love that question because I think uh, there is often the um, misconception that we have to have large amounts of time to do something or that we have to have a particular skill to be helpful. When I think the reality is, is that one of the things that I, um, I knew, but has definitely been reinforced by the work with Immigrant Families Together is that all of these issues are interrelated, right? So when we were talking earlier about school, I think, you know, one of the things that I would be working on if I were not working on this issue is working on the quality of education at our kids' public schools. Yes, even in New York, right? The things that they are learning are not always reflective of the society in which we live, right? The diverse society in which we live and like the true history of, of this country and its role in the kinds of um, historical abuses that we've perpetrated against, for example, Central American countries. And so um, the narrative that our kids are getting in school, for example, is not necessarily a full or accurate narrative. So I think one thing that as a parent is to really be more involved in our kids' education. And that doesn't necessarily mean going to PTA meetings. I can't stand PTA meetings, so I don't go to them. But like, it really means being involved like at the classroom level, right? So something as simple as our kids at their school have um, a, a friend's read-aloud day where you can invite your parent or some other family member or an adult friend to come to the classroom and read to the whole class. So when you're doing something like that, choose a book that's like reflective of your culture or a part of the story that doesn't normally get told. And there are so many great children's books right now um, to pick from. So, I mean, I think that's just one really small example, but to realize that like all of the issues that sort of affect us as families, that affect us as New Yorkers, that affect um, our country from like mass incarceration to food security to climate change, all of those issues are interrelated. They're all immigration issues, right? Immigration is a disability and access issue. It is a healthcare issue. So any of these fields in which, particularly as a parent, I think you bring a special knowledge and special um, voice to like impact those areas, I think is really critical. It's not that people necessarily have to like donate to immigrant families together or like volunteer to like go with a family to court. It's really about looking at in your own really small circle in, in the circle of your family and the circle of your community and the circle among your friends. What are the ways where we can begin to make small impact, but in a very meaningful way? And I think there are many more accessible ways to do that than we realize a lot of times. Wow, it's really amazing. I had never thought of it that way because I always thought, you know, you were going to say, just donate. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think like, I mean, I, our treasurer is always like, why don't you tell people to donate? But no, I mean, I think it really is about understanding like how related all of these issues are, right? Yeah. And like choosing the one that really resonates most with you and saying, this is like the, the tiny little piece that I'm going to work on, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think also like it's a voting, it's an electoral issue. It's a voting rights issue. It's an enfranchisement issue. So like, you know, as a parent, especially as a parent of like a really young child or a newborn, 
maybe you don't have the capacity to go out and like canvas on the streets, right? And go knock on people's doors and talk to them about candidates. But if you can jot off like, you know, five postcards a week or one postcard a day to a voter in a red state, for example, through these different um, get out the vote programs and apps, for example, that will send you like lists of people to write. Like those sorts of things I think are achievable for parents of young kids right? Like it's a postcard. You're not going to be able to fit much on there. But I think, you know, there are lots of different really small ways. It's just sort of picking something and like chipping away at it Mm -hmm. on a regular basis and making it part of your life as a family too. That's very, yeah, that's so eye-opening for me. I hope it is for everyone that's listening that we can, you know, be more involved politically and socially also as a parent. Um, For our last questions, I just like to know like, what are like what are you reading what are you listening to right now like what are you doing things for yourself so um i recently decided to not work on weekends <laughs> or to not be available to families okay. on weekends um which was a big deal because for the past year and a half um both francisco and myself have really been accessible 24 7 um And I think it was really important for us to step back, particularly as parents of young kids, right? And to say, there's got to be a a period of time where we are sort of able to, you know, like build up our own family, right? And make sure that we're present for our kids. And so that's like one piece. But in terms of like what I'm reading, I'm always reading like 10 books at the same time. Um, And I just got back from the American Librarians Association Conference in Philadelphia, where I picked up this whole big new stack of books. So um, I just finished reading um, Cherry Mordaga's um, memoir. It's called Native Country of My Heart, Native Heart of My Country. (laughs) Um, I've got the title messed up. But um, she is a Chicana feminist who, uh, my undergraduate degree, one of them is in women's studies. So she was very formative in my thinking as a feminist. Um, So I just finished reading her um, memoir. And I also just finished reading a book called Migrant Longing, which is a kind of an academic book, but it's um, one woman's kind of history of her um, family's letters back and forth across the Mexico-U.S. border and just sort of like really trying to um, further educate myself about the history of immigration in this country and sort of the history of resistance to immigration um, and sort of like looking at that from so many different angles. So that's most of what my book stack consists of (laughs) thank you so much for sharing and thank you for making the time Um, where can we find you on social media so um our website is immigrantfamiliestogether.com and social is mostly all imm fam together on instagram twitter and facebook um and then i am koyasu projects on twitter and instagram Okay, perfect. We'll um, put a link on our show notes. Thank you so much. Thank you. I would love to give you a little bit of an update about Immigrant Families Together. They have posted more than $1 million worth of bonds for 111 adults, reuniting them with their families and supporting them with their needs post-detention as they seek asylum. In addition, they have just launched a detention support program, which seeks to intervene in the cycle at an earlier point. By providing financial support to people in detention, as well as access to legal support. 
So my guest did not ask you to give a donation, but I will. So please be sure to check out their website, immigrantfamiliestogether.com and contribute to this amazing cause.